Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Anoush. I'm Alva. And Armando Iannucci joins us for his best impression of Stephen Bush on this episode of the New Statesman podcast, when we discuss whether the role of prime minister needs to be rethought, and you ask us, what would you put in its place? We're delighted to be joined by Armando Iannucci, the writer and satirist behind The Thick of It, Veep, The Death of Stalin, and most recently, The Personal History of David Copperfield, and of course, the co-creator of Alan Partridge, whose broadcast skills we are severely lacking on this podcast. Thank you so much for joining us, Armando. And the reason that you're with us here today is because you've written a great piece in our special spring issue about why it's time for us to rethink the entire role of the Prime Minister, because it's the 300th anniversary of the creation of the office, isn't it? So um, It is. Yeah. How did you even know that? <laughs> and why did you decide to write well, this? Well, I'm a bit of a political geek. I hadn't actually realize it i think it's this week is the 300th i I thought this year was the 300th because i just happened to read that walpole was made prime minister in whatever it was 1721 and i thought that was also we are coming up for the 300th i'm not sure we're going to have a big festival of prime ministers to celebrate (laughs) but it's been something that's been i've been thinking about for a while how actually over the last 20 maybe 30 years prime ministers become much more presidential obviously in the way they campaign but in terms of just hoarding all the power in number 10 and the role of ministers cabinet ministers has become diminished so that they're really kind of spokespeople for government policy or just there to just work it out in detail but not really to take any initiatives themselves so and everyone comes unstuck every prime minister comes unstuck because of that because if you think about it that's just too crazy an amount of responsibility to take on for one person even if they're like Clement Attlee and just very good at devolving power. But if you're someone like Boris Johnson, who can't make a decision instantly, wants to be loved by everyone, and he's a bit of an oaf to boot, you know, how is that ever going to work? So that was that was the starting point for that bit, that discussion, really. And for listeners who haven't actually got around to reading the piece yet, do you mind telling us a bit about your argument? There's a lot in there about how there's a lack of dissent at the top of politics, which you think is a problem. Well, I- I think everyone has Thatcher down as the kind of the, the bossy prime minister, but actually she had to govern for quite a while, balancing her cabinet between wets and dries. And, and when she 
actually decided, I think all prime ministers go mad after six years, by the way, in that you know, once you've surrounded yourself with people who will say how brilliant you are and yes to everything, I think after six years of that, I think you do become a bit emotionally and mentally detached from the real world. But anyway, when Thatcher was in her mad phase and started <laughs> wants to run Europe her way and the economy her way, you know, she was losing chancellors and foreign secretaries right, left and centre and was brought down by poll tax. I think it was Blair and that kind of grid system of centralising all policy within number 10, even the economic policy, and sending out a kind of team of enforcers, these nameless anonymous figures, a bit like Dementors in, in Harry Potter, who went round the ministries just telling cabinet ministers what to do, what to say, what to think, how much money they had, what they can't do, and who's going on Newsnight that night. I think that's when it started, really. And and the Butler report actually reported into, you know, what went wrong with Iraq and the, the dodgy dossier, you know, pointed this up, this birth of sofa government where prime ministers just sat in one room with their advisers, unelected, who basically thought it was their job to run the country. And gradually that's become the norm. So it happened with Gordon Brown, Cameron did the same. And then, you know, Theresa May came unstuck because of her chiefs, chiefs of staff. I don't know what the plural of chief of staff is. <laughs> chiefs of staff who basically told everyone else to back off, didn't talk to parliament, wouldn't allow anyone in to see her. And then we all know what happened with Boris and Dominic Cummings. So it's become the norm now. It's become the norm. And, and we see it now visually with the construction of, you know, a mission control centre in mm. number 10 wherever and the new grand unveiling of a stage that the prime minister can speak from in number 10 so it's just getting worse and worse and i don't think it works that's the problem you know even if you're completely brilliant smartest person of your generation you couldn't do that job because it's asking too much of you i argue for going back to the likes of clement attlee who was highly successful and he was highly successful because he didn't worry about rivals being in the cabinet and giving them responsibility and telling them to get on with it. So I'm really sorry that I'm going to be mentioning the thick of it in my very first question no, to you, Orlando. I mean, don't um, apologise. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I feel like you said it up there with your mention of, of the Iraq war and, and the dementors and so on, because that's very much the structure underpinning the thick of it, isn't it? The thing that you're probing there is that that quite new system at that point of centralising power to the Prime Minister and his enforcers, the Malcolm Tuckers, going out into the departments and and how dysfunctional that, that system is. So am I right in thinking that this has been a concern of yours for a while, even though you're probing that in a comedic way? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in that first, the very first episode of Think of It, Malcolm phones the minister who's on his way to announce the policy and says... The Treasury's nixed it. You you can't you can't announce a policy. You don't have any money. So think of something else to say. <laughs> and he said, Well, you know, what what do I do? Because I've summoned the Britain's Britain's press and I'm about to make an announcement. And they have 45 minutes in the back of a car to come up with policies that don't cost anything. I actually got the past to improvise because we had some spare time while we were on the way to the next location. So we kept the cameras running. Three of the policies the cast improvised then became law within the next five years, which was um, pet asbos. Everyone has to have their own kind of permanent plastic bag. <laughs> and uh, Chris Addison came up with a national spare room database, which became the bedroom tax. And But yes, you're absolutely right. I mean, what we lack more, it was like everyone was telling Tony Blair, you're mad. This is crazy. You know, 9-11 didn't happen in Iraq. Why are we doing this? You're opening the gates of hell. 
And I was just appalled that, you know, one person could actually get away with it, despite opposition from experts, opposition from civil servants, opposition from his backbenchers, oppositions from... I, I wanted to know, how is it? And, you know, the more I examined it, the more I realised that actually the British Prime Minister, with a healthy majority, has more absolute power than the leader of any other nation, really, because, you know, even Joe Biden has checks and balances. Macron has checks and balances. But the British Prime Minister has, you know, the economy, the legislature, the the, the executive and the judiciary all at his or her command. You know, they can do what they like if they have complete power. And Parliament is, you know, reluctant to oppose the Prime Minister because the Prime Minister can bestow 100 jobs on MPs in Parliament, in, in, in their own party. This is the problem we're at. And and you're seeing it with Keir Starmer finding it difficult to persuade people like Yvette Cooper to, to join the shadow cabinet because she'd rather enjoy actually having a proper job, being head of a select committee. We see it, the politicians, I think, now, being Prime Minister is about one of the very few jobs that's worth ha- having in government now, which means that if, if, if a minister, a, a talented politician, calculates that they're not going to make it, they just get out rather than thinking, actually, I could make a really good fist of being culture secretary or health secretary. You know, that is no longer part of the ambition now. And that's depressing, I find. Mm. One of my favourite phrases in your piece, actually, was a Raab caught in headlights, which was how you described (laughs) poor Dominic Raab when he had to fill in while Boris Johnson was in hospital. And and it did strike me in that period that... um, there was a lot of chaos, you know, at the top of politics and still is at the moment, but there was also a lot of pathos as well. And I I wonder how you felt watching these things play out, you know, the awkward press conferences, the U-turns and the last minute decisions. I mean, did you look at it through the lens of a satirist who has, you know, you've satirised the media in programmes like Time Trumpet and, and of course, political operators in the thick of it and and in the loop as well. I mean, were you looking, looking at it through that lens at all? No, I don't think I was really, because, you know, rather like you and like, rather like everyone else, I was stuck at home and just wanting this thing to end, you know, being frustrated, I think, that in front of our eyes, we could see decisions being taken badly. You know, we could see, I mean, this book that's just come out, Failures of State, from the Sunday Times Insight team, the inability of the government to get to grips with the seriousness of what was looming and this sense that somehow... Because of Brexit, Britain would be a little bit better than the rest of Europe at handling it. That for me just, I think it was just mounting frustration and anger, really. Now, whether in about three or four years' time, you know, <laughs> I kind of work out what my comedic response to all that is, I, I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll kind of see. I mean, you know, as I said, the thick of it was response to the the invasion of Iraq, but the thick of it was came out about three or four years after that. Mm. You know, it takes time to process this. You know, I'd far rather we were just as journalists and as the media, we were just much more probing about what was going on. And you mentioned Dominic Rabb. I mean, there it was clear, you know, he was doing his best, but clear there was clear no system in place mm. to let people know what exactly should happen if the prime minister is incapacitated. And again, that I think that shone a light on the kind of dysfunction that we have at the top where irrespective of whether it's Boris Johnson, but whoever it is that's in charge, we put too much power and responsibility on them. And indeed, they do it themselves. You know, they... And the other thing I argued in the piece in the New Statesman this week is is that actually all leaders now are behaving like this. So, you know, when Keir Starmer takes over the Labour, it's a kind of complete turnaround from Jeremy Corbyn 
who, when he took over, was a complete turnaround <laughs> from, from Gordon Brown and Ed Miliband. It, it's like, even though they're elected by, not by 100% of the people, as soon as they get in, they feel they have their views represent 100% of the membership. And that becomes increasingly frustration. I think we saw it in its most comedic, concentrated form when Joe Swinson took over as leader of the Lib Dems and just went absolutely crazy on the ego. (laughs) You know, it was Joe Swinson's Lib Dems and she was in the front of every manifesto and the side of every bus and was going to be prime minister. But I think, you know, that's the environment in which we have now, which is when you're elected leader of a party, you should, you're you allowed to have complete dictatorial control over, over everything within that party. And I think it confuses people. And I think it makes not just members, but voters a little bit confused and uncertain as to what the hell's going on. That's interesting because we spend a lot of time, as you can imagine, on this podcast talking a lot about Keir Starmer's strategy and how he's doing. And you sort of just briefly touched on on the way he seems to be quashing dissent from mm. from backbenchers. But more broadly, how do you think he he's getting on in the job? It's been very difficult to, because obviously he's I mean, he insists on doing these passionate speeches in front of a lectern where you know there's only one other person in the room, and. I just I just want to see the more conversational side of him, which I haven't seen. He always reminds me of someone who's been waiting for a taxi for a long time. He just has that slightly kind of steely but annoyed look, which is, you know, I've been here. Should I just carry on waiting or should I just walk? I don't know. There's just a slight <laughs> kind of air of, I can't quite put my finger on it. You know, I just want him to lighten up. Everyone tells me he, there's a lighter side to him. I'd like to see it. I really wonder what they would do if that was put to them in a focus group, how they would tackle that waiting for a taxi vibe. But, but I think also, I think, because I think you've been mentioning that, you know, he is paranoid about what trying to get back the northern wall, the, the red wall mm. that has been lost. And therefore he's focusing on that. But it does mean, rather like Ed Miliband did with that mug that say clamp down on immigration or whatever it was, you know, <laughs> I think it just sends people slightly confused, you know. I don't know how you can lighten up in a pandemic, but I would like to see the lighter side. I'd like to see the normal, the human side, please. <laughs> you know, I mean, go back to, again, that first episode of The Figure that I was talking about. When that went out, various former cabinet ministers would come up to me and say, I've been in the back of that car, you know, which <laughs> kind of indicates that, you know, this is a long running problem now, because I think, I think about it, I'm scared to try and work out, but it, probably a long time ago it started now, you know, so this is an ongoing problem, I think. Well, can I ask on that? I feel like in political journalism, or when, when you speak to politicians or the people who work for, for them, yeah. you can really tell that the thick of it has sort of entered into into the collective consciousness and it it has sort of become a a mythology of British politics in a way that people see themselves being like the thick of it a lot of the time and it's it's a quite fundamental part of how politicians and and the people who work for them view themselves I just wonder if you share that view or or how you feel about that you know because I suppose it's slightly cynical to a degree to, to see politics as kind of chaotic and farcical. And also whether you feel like that has changed, that that was an analysis, I suppose, that suited the Blair era and the Brown era. But but this is a kind of different politics now. And I, I suppose since Brexit and and so on, it feels like the political mood has changed. But I don't know, do you, do you have a sense of the way the thick of it is slightly mythologized? Well, yeah, part of the reason I stopped it was it seemed to be not so much a kind of 
warning about <laughs> how things could go wrong, but seen as some sort of training manual on how you conduct, should conduct yourself. You know, so when Ed Miliband called George Osborne's budget, uh, um, uh, oh, what was the phrase now? Was it uh, uh, an omni shambles? God, I'm trying to read and remember my own. I think uh, <laughs> an omni. That tells you how old I am now. An omni shambles, and then Cameron accused Corbyn of uh, being like an episode of the figure. I kind of thought that's the time to stop because you know they don't get it. A lot of people in communications in in Whitehall see Malcolm Tucker as some kind of hero to look up to, whereas I always had him down as as the idiot. You know, he could talk the talk in that you were impressed by him, but if you analysed anything he did. He made it worse. Every episode of Think of It was a small problem is made worse when Malcolm comes in and tries to sort it. And then Malcolm leaves so that the minister can get the blame for the mess that Malcolm has made. That's really kind of, you you know, if you wanted to boil it down. I think what's different now is one of the things I, I picked up on as we were researching prior to doing the Think of It, I was doing some research, was I was amazed by how much of the country was run by 24-year-olds, you know, these very, very young advisors who had done a degree in politics and philosophy and economics and had become a kind of junior researcher and then a spin doctor for a minister and there was an air of them you know glee in there you know you knew they were ringing people all their friends up going you won't believe what where i am i mean number 10 i mean do you know I, i've just set aside some money for the building of a hospital you know really excite you know just getting off on on being in power i think what's changed is that that sense of kind of giddy excitement has now travelled upwards. So it's now, it's now the party leader that's like that. You know, there is an air of Boris and Dominic Cumming and, and whoever it is that now have gone, oh, you'll never believe it. I mean, I'm, I'm the prime minister. I'm, pr- I'm the prime minister. I've just said we could build 40 hospitals. Yeah, you'll never believe it. You know, I think, I think that's the sense I get. <laughs> there is the leaders that are now giddy with this kind of untrammeled power that they have. Which is why I'm kind of arguing for everyone to just get a grip and calm down and get some grown-ups in the room who could maybe do some, some who could take some of the responsibility off their overexcitable shoulders. It's really interesting that you say that because uh, it seems to me that in recent times the kind of cult of the shadowy advisor has reached its own parody levels with Dominic Cummings. Mm. Yeah. And I wonder if you think that us as political journalists put too much weight on the influence of these people and actually it would be more helpful to look at it as, a, as, as the leaders who are ultimately accountable that's right i think i mean you know we're all involved in this you know we like the the soap opera element of you know is dominic cummings doing the who's pulling the strings who's the puppet master will they get their comeuppance you know all that and i think you know that's that's a great story but i i think if the media were less obsessed by the soap opera politics of of personality that's going on behind those closed doors and and we're, we're much more interested in in just analysing what is it they're saying and what is it they're doing. There's a paragraph in the Tory manifesto, the 2019 election, that just for me is just the most frightening paragraph ever written in British politics for the last 100 years, which is, we will also look at constitutional powers, the relationship between parliament and the law and the judicial reviews and, and an overhaul of all things to do with justice. You know, it's a, it was a sort of little footnote that just said, oh, by the way, if we get a majority, we'll look into everything and see if we can change it. You know, I think it's the media's duty to ask, 
how is a party allowed to get away with that if it has a majority? What are the checks and balances we have in place to stop something like that from happening? There are discussions to be had about all the recent inquiries and reviews in the last couple of weeks that have, surprise, surprise, come out with glowing endorsements of of what happened and glowing testimonies to say that no one in power was at fault for anything. That's a yes minister trait. That's a think of it trait, which is, you know, if you're going to set up an inquiry, make sure you choose the right people to hold the inquiry. These things are worrying and why aren't we challenging them more? Well, thank you very much for allowing me this very easy segue. So the Race Commission, which I think you were alluding to there, came out yesterday and it concluded that Britain no longer has a problem with institutional racism. It's caused a lot of controversy. And I wondered whether um, you have many thoughts on this because you had to answer a lot of questions about racial discrimination in Britain when you were doing press for David Copperfield, didn't you, because of the film's diverse cast. So how did you feel about that reaction to your casting decisions and and what were you saying about, about your choice? I mean, interesting, the questions I got asked about casting decisions were all asked by people who hadn't seen the film. And then when they had seen the film, the questions went away because, you know, what I was arguing was, A, I could only think of Dev Patel to play David Copperfield. That honestly was, I just couldn't imagine anyone else, but he just seemed to me to typify and, you know, inhabit the spirit of the character. He's in every scene for two hours and he has to do slapstick, comedy, drama, romance, has to be charismatic, has to be awkward. He has to be, you know, he has to grow in front of us in stature. So, you know, and he got a Golden Globe nomination as a result. So um, he was the right person with the job. And as I cast Dev, I thought that's how I should cast everyone. Just cast the right person for the job, really, the right person for the part. Why can't I cast from 100% of the acting talent in front of us? And especially if we are, as as an industry, going to be churning out costume dramas and period dramas all the time, we can't be saying to a large group of actors, there's nothing here for you. And these are enormous talents that that sadly have to go to America to get decent roles. Mm. That was my thinking. But it did make me also think, you know, part of the reason I wanted to do it is because I I wanted to celebrate diversity in in Britain. You know, there is a danger because of Brexit that we see Britain as an isolated, insular, divisive country. That's not what I think. I think we're an enormously generous, kind, open, creative, welcoming country. So I wanted to celebrate that. Now, with this report, I think it is possible to believe that we are forward thinking as a country and, you know, we have a far better record in terms of our approach to diversity and race than quite a lot of other countries, while at the same time acknowledging that there are still problems. Fine, I did what I did in David Copperfield, but the likes of Lenny Henry have really had to bang on and on for some time about diversity in the the film and television industry. And it's only now beginning to... I mean, the the film BAFTAs a year ago were appalling, given the talent that was on screen. And it's taken a year of BAFTA having to rethink, you know, how it talks about and how it looks at the films and television available. But there's still a lot of work to be done. You know, I've made it a point, not just in Copperfield, but on Avenue 5 and the other things, Mm. that each department on the crew, so lighting, cameras, wherever have to take on two people for work experience who have an enormously talented CV but just don't have the opportunity to come to London to work because it's a ruddy expensive thing to to do. That's irrespective of what their ethnic background or class or education background is. It's just basically 
let's put in every department at least two people who have the skills but just haven't had the opportunity to get here. And the results have been dazzling. I mean, absolutely amazing in that every department has wanted to keep them on because they're really good at their job. It's the same I do when I'm recruiting script writers. You know, I ask people to send me scripts with their names taken off. So I'm, mm-hmm. I'm just reading the scripts entirely on quality. But I do think it's a conscious thing we still have to keep doing in companies and in boardrooms, in front of the camera, behind the camera, in the media, in, in school, everywhere. It's still something we can't, we can't drop. Another, another story this week is that England has started unlocking from the lockdown. And we were wondering, have you spent any time outdoors with no more than five other individuals yet? <laughs> yes, I had, uh, I had a writing meeting with two others in Regent's Park on Monday afternoon. You know, the weather's nice. And, and from what I could see, people were responding quite well to it. I mean, it was busy-ish, but people were in groups of twos and threes. We've had some neighbours around, but... I've had the first vaccine, but I'm still paranoid about, I just don't believe anything that Boris Johnson tells me. You know? And I've kind of, I've kind of stuck to that for the last year. I don't want to be a gloomster, but you know, if 50% of us have been vaccinated, that means 50% of us haven't. And there are, the caseload on, on mainland Europe is dreadful and is, is spreading mostly among people under 50. So we still have to keep our guard up. We still have to be very, you know, we can't do a kind of 50-50 on this. We can't say, well, we've come halfway. So it's now the virus's turn to uh, <laughs> compromise. I think the virus should compromise now and, and show that it's it's kind of prepared to just take on a few limitations. So it's still a very real threat, I find. And, and I think we have to proceed very, very carefully. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. And now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask Us. us. Very well done. Thank you so much for participating. So we've got a question from a listener who's read your piece, Armando, and they are asking, after reading Armando Iannucci's article about whether the role of Prime Minister is fit for purpose, what changes would you make to ensure the role of Prime Minister can work in 21st century politics? And then they've added a turnip for the first person to suggest the removal of Boris Johnson. (laughs) No, that won't change. (laughs) I mean, it's difficult because it involves a change of attitude. It involves a change of people when they come into power, assuming that they have total power. I don't think any changes are going to come soon in Parliament while Jacob Rees-Mogg is leader of the House. It needs an enlightened leader of the House who will give more power 
to backbench scrutiny, more power to select committees, you know, a, a House of Lords with some teeth would be good. So failing that, anything that devolves power away from number 10, whether it's across Whitehall or devolved even further to the regions, I think is good because anything that just takes this overload of power away from number 10 is good. But it, but it's very rare you get politicians who, if elected, then choose to restrict their own power. And these things only happen in that m- mad rush of when a new government comes in and in the first three months of their kind of, you know, so when Blair got in, very quickly they got on with devolution. You know, I think four or five years into a, a Blair government, they would have been a bit, maybe a bit nervous of devolution because they might have got so used to the power. So it, it it is hard. And it's not just Boris Johnson. It's the fact that we've had a conservative administration now for the last over 10 years now, isn't it? In one form or another. These things only happen in the in the honeymoon period. So I think it's about maybe pushing for Keir Starmer and the Lib Dems to, and the Greens to push in their manifestos for the next election, very, very specific ways in which power can be taken away from number 10. Not taken away, but just spread out responsibly and allowing cabinet ministers and departments to be able to you know, bring in their own expertise and feel a little bit freer to spend the money how they think. That's my kind of tuppence hapen's worth. Like you, I've been, you know, reflecting on 300 years of prime ministers. I've been dipping in and out of Ian Dale's anthology of essays on each of the prime ministers, which is pretty good, even though there are hardly any women writing essays in it. I think the thing that really strikes you is the way just not just the role of the prime minister, but basically everything in British politics has evolved by chance. Yes. That even the role of prime minister really just, you know, it first originated, it was a sort of insult to Walpole because he accrued power to himself. And I think by, by basically being so dominant within cabinet and, and asserting his dominance for so long and having a particular relationship with the monarch, he sort of carved out that role and mm-hmm. it has evolved, you know, ever since into a more formal thing. Mm-hmm. But also the checks and balances on that role and on cabinet have just had to evolve in tandem. So I didn't realise, for example, that Prime Minister's Questions is a very, very new invention that even in Margaret Thatcher's time, it was a quite new thing and it was only three questions twice a week and uh, so the central role that it plays in sort of not just holding the government to account but also the way that is how you know that's quite fundamental to how government works this is that's the point in the week where all of the information from government flows through number 10 and basically the prime minister is able to check that everyone is doing what he wants them to be doing and they're able to catch things that they don't like that's like a, a real mechanism for you know the effectiveness of the government but that has all kind of happened by chance and I think as as part of that it means that I just think that the main thing that strikes me is just the way the ministerial code works Mm -hmm. and and the way how much our politics depends on people being decent that basically Donald Trump is an is an extreme example but you know if a recording of you saying pretty awful things, admitting to assaulting women, is released and you personally don't think that it should cause you to stand down or it's a resigning matter, then no one can make you resign. And it happens in British politics in less extreme ways where people can, you know, there's a strong case that lots of people in Boris Johnson's cabinet 
have broken the ministerial code, but they're still in place. And also people can be found to break the ministerial code and resign, but then they make a comeback. Yes. I don't know what we can do about that. Well, it is, it is a depressing thing. You're absolutely right. It depends on sort of common decency, doesn't it, really? And if you take that away, the whole thing collapses because we don't have a written constitution. We don't even have a kind of written... But we have this thing Erskine May, which is some sort of accumulated kind of bucket of wisdom mm. about how parliament works but it's it, it's not written law really and there is an element i think of boris johnson doing a kind of trump light in in terms of him seeing how trump could question various norms which one would assume would survive the questioning but which then just disappear because he's just over over in them and you could see boris johnson do that the, you know the the thing of saying about the brexit deal we will be breaking the law, but only in a sort of very limited and specific way. It's just even five years ago, you couldn't have imagined a minister in in the House of Commons saying something like that and just surviving. Mm. And I think that's what they're relying on. The voter suppression is, is coming our way with this talk about having to have voter ID before you can vote. Because, of course, all the elections for the last 50 years have been absolutely skewered by voter fraud. It's this sort of, we'll learn from the guy who got away with it for four years. And you're absolutely right. There are no checks and balances. You know, Blair, we did have question time twice a week. And then when Blair got in within the first week, he said, no, let's just do it once. And there was nothing to stop him making that change. He also set up the Supreme Court, which was great. But just as equally, Boris Johnson can, can get rid of the Supreme Court if it annoys him. That's the unparalleled amount of power that we put in, in this role. That, as you say, is not written down in any constitution that we have. You know, it's just evolved, really. And the good thing, I suppose, is because it's evolved, it does mean we can, if we put our energy into it, we can change it. But I just find under the present climate, that's going to be very difficult, really. Yeah, I, I think that's really true. How I, I think the Brexit votes and the sort of legal wrangling and constitutional crises around all of that did expose how much of our system is built on a gentleman's agreement, basically. And Alva's absolutely right that we're seeing fewer and fewer ministers resigning for reasons that they usually would have done and coming back as well. So Pretty Patel came back after she after she had to leave her role, and then you have things like the scandal over the grading of of, of students' exam results in lieu of actual exams last year, you would have thought in a previous era that an education secretary would have to resign over something like that. Yeah, they find a civil servant to blame it on who then has to leave. Exactly. Something that I just don't think happens anymore because we do have, it was happening during um, Theresa May's premiership as well, and equally with Jeremy Corbyn as well. There was such opposition to him. There was a, there was a, um, a leadership challenge and he still didn't stand down despite the number of MPs in his party who, who didn't believe in his leadership. So I do think there's this stubbornness that has set in where, where people don't feel the need to resign for the same reasons that they used to. But there's nothing in place to push them into doing that anymore. There's nothing in place to stop them. So a lot of it is, is built on shamelessness. Absolutely. I mean, my great fear for America is that a smarter Trump comes along. <laughs> you know, someone who says who, who says to themselves, well, Trump kind of got away with it, but he was a bit of an idiot. But I'm not an idiot. I know what to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that, there's still that possibility. And again, if Boris Johnson wasn't so obsessed with being liked, you could imagine it being even worse, you know, the kind of liberties being taken. It just needs someone to come along and, and say, well, I'll just be a smarter Boris now. But you're absolutely right. There is that We have no constitution and therefore we have no, literally no constitutional right to try and stop it.
You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, and my colleague, Alva Ray, and our special guest, Armando Yanucci. You can find me on Twitter at Anoush underscore C. You can find me on Twitter at Pronounced Alva. We're produced by Nick Hilton, and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. If you want to leave us a question for the next episode, go to youaskus.co.uk. Thanks so much for listening. Please leave us a review and don't forget to subscribe. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.